Podcast One. Hey everyone, we sometimes talk about some pretty heavy stuff with our guests and can touch on some sensitive topics such as mental health, suicide and depression. If any of these topics are distressing to you or if you know someone who might need some help, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Listen Able, uh, a podcast about disability uh, hosted by Dylan Alcott. G'day, Angus O'Loughlin. And me, uh, just a, a radio host who's able-bodied with a lot of curious questions. Just a dumb able-bodied guy. That's Who me. Wants to ask the questions that you think you can't ask. Well, the other thing is, um, look, we've had some feedback is why am I in this podcast is because when people who are disabled talk to each other, a lot of the questions go over the heads of people who would be listening because it's so it's your normal. For sure. And also, this isn't a podcast for people with disability. It's a podcast for everybody. Entertaining. Exactly. Humorous, emotional, to try and break down some barriers and change those perceptions. And if I was to pick one person that I knew to get a movie made about their story, and I would be very jealous because I would want that story to be about me, but it <laughs> won't, it'll be this guy. The story behind it is incredible, and I cannot wait for everybody to meet him. I'm Curtis McGrath and I'm a one-time Paralympic gold medalist. Not quite as good as Dylan. But, <laughs> they're, coming, uh, they're coming. And uh, I'm a, a combat veteran from Afghanistan. And what is your disability? I, whilst in Afghanistan, I stood on a landmine and uh, lost both my legs. So I'm a double lower limb amputee. Now we'll touch on all that and your backstory. And I got to say, he's pretty modest there. Paralympic gold medalist. He yep. was named the AAS Sports Person of the Year, the International Canoeist of the Year. Oh, in 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, he was. Plus a Medal of Order of Australia. Yep, very Not good. bad. Curtis, you've got a, I mean, we're mate, we've been mates for years and you're a bloody legend, but you've got an incredible story, which we'll touch on in a little bit. But I want to talk about the early part of your life because you're obviously born able-bodied um, in yep. New Zealand, if I'm right. Yep, that's and right. And then moved to Australia. Yeah. So what was it like growing up for you as a youngster in New Zealand? Yeah, pretty uh, sport orientated. And I grew up in like the South Island, Christchurch, Wanaka, Queenstown. So um, sort of great places for sport and adventure as well. So, you know, at school, we'd, we'd have the subject out to recreation, do a bit of kayaking and mountain climbing and like, snow caving, things like that. Part of school and kayaking was one of them too. So um, and I played a rugby and cricket and yeah, got amongst it. Didn't do too much school, but uh, <laughs> it's one of those things that, yeah, hindsight, you should have, would have, could have if you could change it. But it's, yeah, got on with the sport and really enjoyed it. Seems like sport was a, a mm. huge part of your life. So obviously that's going to be affected when we get to the accident. But let's talk about your move into the armed forces. What was the draw to the army? Yeah, so I, I uh, was lucky enough to live in Western Australia out in the Wheat Belt uh, for four years when I was little and got my citizenship while I was there. So when I was going coming to the end of school, we all get asked that question, what we want to do with ourselves, where do we want to go, what do we want to study? And a lot of my mates were heading off to uni and like I said before, I wasn't too uh, keen on more learning or academic learning. So I was looking for more adventure and outdoors and I thought the army was going to do that for me. So I uh, weighed up my options and moved over to Australia and, and enlisted as a combat engineer. So pretty broad role. It's, mm-hmm. I can explain what a combat engineer Please. does if you want. Yeah, so the official role is to provide mobility and deny mobility. And that can be anything from digging a massive trench to stop you know, a vehicle going through it or building a bridge to go over it, demining, defensive measures, construction, road building, water tanks, water purification, um, medical centers, the whole sort of yeah, wow. works of the construction side of things. So. 
it's a very broad role um, and it's a, a job that is required in pretty much every type of deployment there is. So combat deployments, humanitarian deployments, especially in humanitarian matters. Um, and uh, yeah, we've got a heap of different uh, roles and responsibilities. When you go, you were talking to your family and you were like, guys, mm. I'm joining the army. How did they yeah. react? I think they were pretty keen on it. Um, they saw it as a, an amazing opportunity to learn and get skilled up and get paid you know, fairly well whilst you do it. I don't think they understood how dangerous my job could get in a combat situation. Maybe because I, I didn't know either, but mm. at the same time, it was uh, an adventure and the, you know, the combat engineering was, was a pretty cool opportunity. What year was that that you started? 2006. Okay, so six years later, we go to August 2012 and an mm. accident slash incident that changed your yep. life. Yeah, so it's exactly six years to the day that I enlisted, that I deployed to Afghanistan. And it was a lot of uh, excitement and, um, you know, at the same time, we'd spent about 12 months of specific pre-deployment training for this deployment. So it's quite a long process. We, we train uh, more than we actually deploy for. So that role of a combat engineer in Afghanistan is to provide the mobility. So it's out the front, there's no one in front of us searching the row ahead of the patrol to, to make sure it, uh, it's been searched or not quite clear because nothing's clear until you drive a 15-ton tank over hmm. top of it, really. Hmm. We know our job is extremely dangerous, probably the most dangerous job in Afghanistan or the Middle East in that environment. Um, it was about 11 o'clock in the morning, the 23rd of August, we had been given approval to explosively remove this really large boulder that had been pushed onto a onto our main road um, that was going up to a checkpoint and we were clearing this checkpoint and re-establishing it. And the Taliban or, or the insurgents, we don't know whether it was Taliban or not, but the insurgents in the area had laid a lot of IEDs in the area. So we'd been finding um, a fair few of these IEDs in the days leading up. And um, they were very difficult to find. We were only finding the battery packs, which is off to the side of the road, not necessarily the part that's on the road. So unless we could see it and then find the battery, it was a difficult process. So... I'd actually searched over this area the day before and just missed this this device that was uh, very well hidden in the ground. And the conditions on the checkpoint were, were quite rough. There was a lot of rubbish and, you know, we're using metal detectors. So all the rubbish, you know, there's foils and there's a bit of Coke can tabs and just bits of metal all over the ground that they had purposely you know, sprayed across the ground. So it was a, a pretty tricky process. So I was walking along and... At the time, I wasn't searching, and um, you know, I was about ten meters away from my mate Pitch, who was following behind me. And then I just stepped straight on it. And it's not like the movies; it's not like a click bang, or it's like a click. Oh, if I move my foot, I'm dead. It's instant; like it's, it's so fast that I didn't even register it. I didn't even hear the bang. I didn't see my rifle getting snapped in half. My metal detector getting obliterated. That was in my left hand, all packed up. All I remember is sort of just coming a not around, but because I wasn't unconscious, but you know, just maybe a little bit of a knock to the head, got up my elbows. I sort of was like looking up at the sky and it's dark. And I was like 11 o'clock in the morning. This is weird. There's dust and rocks and shit falling from the sky. And I sort of get up on my elbows and look down and I could see the blast crater next to me and I could see my legs were missing and the blood just like spraying on the, on the dirt. And, uh, and that's when the pain hit me, like just like a freight train. Like I explained it, like getting hit by a car, set on fire and, and crushed at the same time. It was, uh, it was a very intense pain uh, that I can't really explain it because it's, it's very... And we uh, wouldn't be able yeah. to understand it anyway. Yeah, Even if, if you could explain it, we've never had yeah, that pain. That's <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's crazy to feel it. 
as well as my role as a combat engineer, I was the, the combat medic for um, the team. So it was not usually the case of us treating our, or getting other people to treat yourself um, and talking them through that process. So it was a, uh, a very difficult process and, and the boys around me were aware that I was in, in a pretty bad shape and, and, and could die. And so they were onto it. Like I was telling them, you know, tourniquets and, and yelling instructions and getting the bandages tight and, you know, making sure the tourniquets were tight enough. And if they weren't, put another one on or tighten them up again. And I don't know, I should probably should explain what a tourniquet is. It's like yeah. a seatbelt material that tightens really tight and stops bleeding. So not only did your legs get blown off, but you first aided yourself. Indirectly. Indirectly yes. to save yeah. your own life. Yeah. When you realized that you were injured, could you see the remains of your legs or were they no. disintegrated pretty much? No, they were sprinkled across the, the sand. Um, later on, like after I, I got you know taken away and whatnot, but guys had to go and pick up my stuff. So they're finding you know, bits of boot and stuff like that. So Was anyone else injured or was it just you? No, luckily it was just me, myself and Pitch that were on the, that area and close to each other. He just got perforated eardrums and a little bit of a cut and whatnot. Like he was walking like I was with the rifle in his hand and, and metal detector. Oh, actually, I don't think he had a metal detector, but his rifle got blown out of his hands and spun him around a bit. Um, and he was a bit dazed and confused. But and it wasn't until after that I got taken away that we realised that he had had a like pretty severe concussion. So it wasn't making sense with his words and seriously wouldn't be here without people like Pitch and, um, and the guys that were on that patrol and, and fixed me up. So obviously we know that you lost both of your legs, uh, mm. but there was yeah. more damage to you that goes beyond that as well. Yeah, yeah. I had quite a lot of extensive damage to my hands. Um, I was quite lucky not to lose my left hand. I had a, a very large wound that went into the like the tendons, but I didn't realize that that was buggered. So um, you know, I was, I was using it as if it was all good and, and not realizing that I had burns and perforated eardrums um, and and. I had a very large wound up the back of my leg that if I was shorter, it would have went into my torso. But, you know, being six foot three, it sort of helped me out a little bit there. Now, when you're getting medevaced onto mm. the plane, can you tell us a story about what you said to the yeah. soldiers when you were trying to get carried on? So I should probably give a bit of context of timing, especially yeah. 2012. Um, the London Olympics had just wound up. We'd come back from patrols, you know, watch TV, you know, weightlifting, athletics. But in the ads, there would be like Paralympic promotion. And I, I used to love to run. So I was like, look how fast he's going. And these guys are getting around on little bits of carbon or a wheelchair that's, you know, ripping around a, a court or whatnot. So it's one of those things that you, you see it and you're like, holy shit, there's another like side of sport. And I had never seen the Paralympics before that time, ever. Mm. Uh, and, and that's just through ignorance and naivety of growing up and not around a disabled person. Like I just didn't have that exposure. And um, the lads put me onto the, the stretcher and, you know, they're carrying me along and, you know, we're joking about losing brand new boots and you know, I won't be able to go on holiday. Hmm. And, and then I was like, oh, don't worry about me. I'll just go to the Paralympics. It'd be sweet. It'd be all fine. I'll just get some prosthetics and go for a go for a blood around the track. Turn and, it up. <laughs> what a story. <laughs> and... It's one of those things that how would I perceive that even being possible? I knew my legs weren't coming back, but I knew that what I said there in that moment might make a difference to those boys because that trauma that I was going through was not just my trauma. It was theirs too. It was my mother's trauma that was getting a knock on the door. It was my girlfriend who got a phone call at med school in New Zealand. Like it just all these people were being affected by what I was going through. But if I could say something that would maybe help them in that moment, that shit, he might be all right and, and come out the other side, you know, stronger than ever. So, yeah. 
you have a beautiful partner, Rachel, who you're mm-hmm. now married to. We'll talk yes. about that in a minute. But yeah. you went to war as able-bodied and you came back mm. and you were a WMPT. How did that affect her and your relationship with her? It wasn't until I was at hospital in, in Brisbane. I came home and um, it was the first time that I was able to transfer myself from the bed to the wheelchair. And it was the first time that I realized I was actually now a disabled person. I actually needed a wheelchair or prosthetics just to move about and have a normal life. And mm. for me, that was obviously a hard thing to swallow, but it's not just my pill to swallow. And like I was saying about the trauma, that, that was partially hers too. And and she was there that day and, and we have a, have a photo like just before I burst into tears uh, on the realization of the situation. And she was like the strength in that part of my rehab. And it was really important for, for me to have her there and also looking back she helped me focus on what I did have rather than what I didn't and making sure that what's ahead of me is really you know positive and, and healthy and you're healing really fast so you know you'll be back on your feet in no time no pun intended there but yeah <laughs> your new feet in your feet <laughs> yeah that's um, right I mean you had the support of Rachel I'm sure your family and friends mm, back home yeah, you had the support yeah. of your team what was the support like given financially mentally emotionally from the army uh, amazing there's a lot of you know, horror stories out there about the treatment of the veterans and you know, there's the current situation with the Royal Commission to mm-hmm. Veteran Suicide. But for me, I experienced no forcefulness, no negativity on it all. It was all like, what can we do for you? How can we help you? What do you want to do? And where can we insert ourselves to enable me? And, and I felt empowered by it. And it was something that I was surprised by because I've heard all the, all the, the nasty stories and, and how people were mistreated. But that story of what I said on the stretcher about going to the Paralympics got out pretty quick. And the, the chief of um, army came into my hospital bed just to, as I got back to Brizzy. And so I heard what you said on the stretcher because they get a massive briefing on everything and every, anything that happens. And um, he's like, I heard what you said on the stretcher and like, we really want to support you doing this. And, you know, you just let us know if there's anything we can do to help you and, and enable me to get there. And I was just like, shit, like this is, this doesn't happen. It's like a golden ticket. So I um, held him to that and, and obviously went down the path. And emotionally, there's, there's obviously some dark days and, and a lot of people assume that um, going through a, a trauma like that or, you know, combat trauma, I'm exposed to post-traumatic stress disorder and, that's not always the case. Um, and for me, I had a purpose. Like, as soon as I sort of got into that wheelchair, shit, I'm going to get my legs back. I'm going to rehab. I'm going to get strong and fit and stand up and welcome the boys home from when they got home from Afghanistan. And, and that was my goal. And each step of the way, there was always this goal that I was driving for. And that helped me. And I was enabled by the military. And, you know, they provided the right psychologists, they provided hand therapists and occupational therapists and physios and you name it, they're all there waiting for me. And the DVA, the Department of Veteran Affairs have been really good to me as well. So I haven't really needed for much other than someone to mow my lawn every now and then. (laughs) Pretty good. (laughs) One thing I love about you, Curtis, is you always wear shorts. A couple of reasons. It's more practical, but I love it that you also like showing people that you have a disability. You're proud of it. But could you see the way society looked at you differently? Oh, massively. Yeah. And kids are the best because they've got no filter and they ask what they want to know yeah. and straight up you can tell them. And, and I read an amazing article on the ABC, I can't remember who wrote it, about you know the way in which a parent tells their child about disability when they see it. And the norm is to provide all these negative words, you know, you're broken, you're crippled, you're disabled, you're yeah. not, can't do this, can't do that. And it, 
like the way I read it, I was like, man, this is so true because you see these kids like, oh, dad, what's wrong with his legs? And uh, or is he a robot? And, and they're like, oh, don't say, that. don't, don't yeah. no, 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 no. he's he's broken. Or even if they get a smack, right? I've seen kids oh, get smacked just, when they go, what's oh, that? Wow. And then yeah. that, you know what happens when they go to school with yep. someone like me or Curtis, another mm. kid, they don't talk to them because they think they're going to get in trouble. Negative connotations yeah. towards yeah. Them. exactly. So they, it gets deterred from understanding. Well, yeah. Just breaking yeah. down that, how do you think? Uh, and obviously, it's not a, a one size fits all. But how do you think parents should be? approaching their kids when they do see somebody who has a difference using positive words it has to be positive and and saying like like what rach said to me you know look at what i can do and not what i can't and look what i have what not what i don't and looking at those you know positive aspects of the disability or that's probably even the wrong word to Uh use but you know what i mean like dylan's bloody good at tennis yeah. Um, mm. Not bad at basketball. Good looking. Um, yeah, you can maybe get that mm. on the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> Very small print. <laughs> you lost your right leg at the knee and the left leg just below the knee. Yes. Does it matter where you lose your leg? Uh, had you lost both below the knee, does your life change? Great able-bodied question, Angus. It is, okay. and it is a very frequent question. Right. Um, yes, it would change a little bit. Um, so my right leg, I have a prosthetic knee that requires quite a bit of attention. It's got a battery in it, so I wouldn't have to charge the knee um, because I'd have both my knees. Yep. I'd be able to go up and down stairs, no worries. Because the um, knee's paramount, I'm being dumb because I actually don't know, mm, the yep. knee joint is paramount to walking. Is that right, Curtis? That's what you miss uh, the most? It's trying to get back to replicate, you know, the old Mark One leg that we're born with mm-hmm. in a way. And it's close, but like it's so far away at the same time. Like I can walk in a straight line really good and – that's about it. Do you charge your phone at night to pop your leg off and have a charger next to the bed for your leg? In a way. It, the battery is hell of a lot better than my iPhone. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's it, not hard. It's about five days, five okay. days with the battery. So it's pretty good. But um, What does it do? So the, the battery inside it, it's got 16 sensors and four microprocessors. And it takes all this information, how I move, into the, the microprocessors and that converts it into valve pressure. So there's a hydraulic system and cylinder inside the knee so when I move, it predicts how I'm moving from that previous step and it opens the, the valve all the way so it swings right nice and free or if I'm moving slower, it'll close it you know, halfway and move it slower wow. and things like that. Amazing. I just want to give a shout out to anybody who is 40 years and older who has a disability. Mm. Curtis and I are very lucky to be born in this age. In this oh, age. Yeah, I'm just like, I just want to give a shout out because how tough that was. Curtis McGrath, one thing I want to ask you about real quickly, which is one of my favourite things. How tall were you when you had your real legs? Exactly the same as I am now. Are you sure three. about that? You sure you haven't juiced up your fake <laughs> legs a bit? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so, I think. Want to dunk a ring, get 6'7 out of those could, boys? You can be <laughs> six. You could go 6'7. You had a German prosthetic company that first fitted you, right? Which at the time was no doubt revolutionary. How has the business changed and the progression gone? Because obviously it sounds like unbelievable technology you've got now. Is it different to what you had in 2012? The fundamentals of the prosthetics that I have on are the same. Um, okay. Just the added technology. So now this has Bluetooth in it that connects with my phone and I can I can turn off and on the valves if that makes sense. So it goes floppy and I can jump on a stationary bike or I can fix it so the valve is closed uh, and it f- fixes it so I can do, you know, gym stuff as well. So it's, it's quite important for me to have that opportunity to do that. And again, Curtis and I are not denying that we are the lucky ones that have a disability mm. who get looked after because we play sport, but how yep, much is yep. that leg if you got it off the shelf? So the set I'm currently walking around on is about 200 grand. Wow. So they're not cheap. Do you know that when I wanted to get a wheelchair when I was a kid, mm. I wanted a titanium one because I was pretty fat and it helped me get around. And my dad's like, oh, that's pretty expensive. And I would say, can't put a price on your legs, dad, can you? <laughs> 
<laughs> but actually, great you can't, response. You can't, you can't two hundred grand. <laughs> well, when my first car was a yeah. Toyota Camry wagon, it was two That's grand. Great. Sponsor mm. drop there, sponsor drop. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what a feeling. Um, but you know what I mean? It's crazy to think like my wheelchair, it's more expensive my tennis than chair your car. is fifty grand. Like yeah. you know, it's, it's I use a day chair at home, and that's like ten grand or something. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so you take the legs off to... Oh, that's another... So you don't yeah. wear your legs at home. You kind of... Use no, no. Like, if I'm doing stuff like cooking and doing the household chores, yeah, of course, because there's just the, the mobility and, you know, I can... I've got my arms free but um, and moving around. But, uh, yeah, at home, like, being comfortable. These are not made to sit in. They're not made to chill in. They're made okay. to walk in. Yep. Yeah. What about when you're doing the after-hours chores... After, no. Secret bedroom chores. Oh, okay. <laughs> With your beautiful wife. Legs, legs on, on or off? It's up to her. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, you would probably know the technology that is coming for your legs. I mean, no one Um, would know more than you about what the future holds. What does prosthetics look like for your particular case? One of the good things that came out of the the conflict in Afghanistan was the American military, and this is just in 2012, Mm -hmm. pumped $680 million into prosthetic development to develop the knee that I'm on now. So now that that war is sort of winding down but there's always going to be demand Mm -hmm. but the necessity for providing medical devices prosthetics wheelchairs that you know sort of get people back out into the battlefield because like the base that i left from for example it was patrol base anaconda was there was green berets there so you know american special forces Mm -hmm. there was a guy there got blown up just down the road from where i got blown up lost his leg and then he went back as an amputee in the war as a green beret there was a big photo of him on the wall and i was like he's batshit crazy he's 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 badass so you get back you rehab you're back on your feet your Mm. relationship's going well you're right i'm going to take this paralympic thing legit when did you decide it was going to be in the boat on the water did you try other sports how did you make the decision so I dabbled in a few different sports. I had the opportunity to go over to the States and do this thing called the Marine Trial Games. So the Marines and the American military, each of their arms, have uh, disabled sports for their veterans and, and or wounded servicemen and women. And I got the opportunity six months after I got hurt to go over to the States and do some stuff. So I did archery, swimming, wheelchair, basketball, and I can't shoot to save my life. Hmm. Um, I mean, a basketball. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was probably not coached very well. Every time I missed the ball, I got like screamed at. And I was like, mate, this is the first time I've done this. So he's like, awesome. Yep. Swimming was pretty good, but I knew it was like hard. And I really don't like staring at a black line for your life. Mm -hmm. Um, That's pretty rough. Wanted to be outdoors and doing some stuff. So I started to explore some like charities that were doing some different activities. And one we were doing, uh, we did a big kayak from Sydney to Brisbane and uh, over three weeks. I don't recommend doing it. Just take the flight. It's much faster. It's uh, <laughs> 980 Ks, uh, about 50 Ks a day. And even doing that made me realize that, should I quite like this kayak thing? And I did it at school and I was like, oh, I'll pick up the paddle and, and heard that it was coming into Rio and yeah, did that and, and got into it. And uh, I won my first uh, world champs in the Outrigger Canoe, which will be the new addition to the Tokyo Games for paddling. Which you'll be doing both, kayak yeah, and Yeah, yeah, that's right. And did really well in Moscow in 2014. So uh, I was like, shit, I'm onto a good thing here. And then right at the start of 2015, which was our qualifying year, and like three weeks before our first selection event, the International Paralympic Committee removed the outrigger canoe and changed it back into the kayak. And if anyone's been in a sprint kayak, they'll probably be wet um, because they fall out. Uh, it's it's a very, very, very tippy machine. And you'd yeah. never really kayaked at this point? 
Not not two like years pre Rio. Yeah, I've done a little bit of high school white water stuff, and that's so different. Like mm. the boats don't fall over if you're not ready for it. So jumped in. I was like, shit, I got to do some do some work here, and um, was doing four sessions a day, and got back on the horse. You get picked. Mm. You roll into Rio. Now you're a new disabled person. Let's be honest. You're only yep. four years yep. in. Yep. When you walk in there and see thirty thousand people with some of the craziest disabilities that you've ever seen yep. in your life. How did you react? It's awesome. Like it's so amazing to see what's possible and how people adapt to their disability. Even even the, the, the poorer countries around the world, they were getting about on very rudimentary prosthetics and, and wheelchairs and all sorts of stuff, but they're getting it done and they're, you know, they're, they're top of their field and doing amazing you know, athletic ability. Um, one thing that I wasn't expecting was the amount of people with short stature. It was just one of those things that you don't see see that. Oh yeah, and I would have expected Yeah, my favorite yeah. Paralympic story ever. I don't think I've told you this, oh, Angus. Please, you ready? Right. Go. One of the things about the Paralympics is it uses more condoms than the Olympics. I think it's because people oh. with a disability like yeah. are comfortable with their own kind. I guess. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Of course. So I'm in the food hall and there's a condom machine, and there was <laughs> a male person of short stature weightlifter, yep. picking up his girlfriend of short stature on his shoulders and she yep. was getting the condoms out of the condom machine. Because <laughs> they couldn't reach Because they couldn't reach Wow. <laughs> so he gave her a wow. boost to get the condoms <laughs> to go have some post-gold medal <laughs> sex. Right. Yep. And you hear a lot about the Olympics and the amount of condoms they use. Yeah, so, so to say there's more at the Paralympics. Equal to more, they reckon, at the Paralympic Games. There all you go. Right. Um, and there's like half the amount of athletes. <laughs> <laughs> Introduce yourself at the top as a Paralympic gold medalist. So Rio was obviously pretty successful. Yeah, yeah. Rocking up there. I won the World Championships that, that year. So it's sort of like the seating event. And mm-hmm. People take it seriously. The Emmys to the Oscars. Mm. That's right. And being a debut sport, you're not really sure how to interact with everyone. And our event's in the, like, the last part of the game. So that's... We were one of the like, last two to finish. Kind of yeah, yeah. I think we finished and, on the same day or yeah, something. Yeah. So, so like it, it sucks because everyone's winning. Yeah, everyone's on the beers. All losing yep. and then getting on the beers. And you're like, yep. oh, like it's not that you want the beers, yeah. but it's just the tension, yeah. You get on the water, how are you feeling? Real nervous. I put a lot of effort, a lot of people had supported me, a lot of people had, you know, committed a lot of, you know, time and even finances to get me to where I was and I wasn't quite aware of how much that affected me, but I was nervous because of that. And, you know, I lined up and or warmed up and I was super nervous, but then we come into this like TV zone area and I'm not sure if you have this in tennis, but as we roll up to the start line, it, the cameras sort of go across each lane. This is Curtis McGrath from Australia, yeah, lane five, yeah, lane six, mm. Marcus Hubbard from Austria, so on, so on. We rolled in there and as I rolled in there, all my nerves went away and I was like, you beauty, I'm on here. And bang, I had a pretty good start. But the difference is that with with your sport, Dylan, you can react to your opponent. You have to react, otherwise you'll, you'll be up, up class. And mm. Whereas my sport, you can't react. It's all over in 41 point, I think it's three seconds or something like that. And by that time, you know, there was like a, a leader change twice and it was, you know, back and forward. And it's so fast, but at the same time, it's, it's quite a long time when you, you're stroking it out and you, you're doing like 120, 130 strokes a minute. And by the end of it, I'd finished like a boat and a half ahead of uh, Marcus and the rest of the field. And when I crossed the line, I was like, holy crap, like that actually just happened. <laughs> and... I'd said on the stretcher that I'd go to the Paralympics. I'd never said that I'd won a gold medal. And I'd achieved all for the people that supported me, for the, the guys that got wounded, you know, the, the guys that didn't come home. And for me, that was really important. And I, I thought I was going to be excited and celebratory and, and joy and all that sort of thing. But I didn't get any of it. It wasn't until I was on the podium uh, that, that I actually felt that. 
Do you know why you didn't feel anything? It's a feeling of relief. Oh, it massive. And that's, oh, that's yeah, all it is. I forgot to say that. You're like, just this wave. It was just like, boof. I didn't smile either. I'm like, oh, thank God. Now I can breathe. For you both, is that an expectation on yourself or from others? I mean, does your coach expect you to win and have put that pressure on you? No. Nah, well, my my coach is pretty, pretty flex in that area. Um, they want you to go out and do your best. Where you come in the race or the, the match is, it's almost irrelevant because the regret will come as if you didn't try your hardest to do the best you can. Yeah. And that's where, you know, that's where you know, I think the difference is in the performance. Yeah, I think it's pretty amazing to hear this journey to the podium. Mm-hmm. So I think the podium's irrelevant to the, the fact that you got there. I don't want to make comparisons at all, but because in a canoe slash kayak, you don't use your legs. So what is your comparable times to people who are able-bodied? What's the difference? So my, my boat's a little bit wider than theirs, so it's going oh, to be a bit slower. So every time I have, don't have a paddle in the water, I'm going to slow down more mm-hmm. than the, the uh, Olympic boys and, gotcha. and girls. And they use leg drive. So the, the way you, I could describe kayaking is you put the paddle in the water, but the water is concrete, and you pull the boat past the paddle. You don't move the paddle. Gotcha. So you're, And if you have leg drive, you can also push mm. the boat. And I, for me, I don't wear prosthetics in the boat. I have this adaption that sort of stops me from using my leg drive or anything like that. So mm. that's just disability class. And my times are about five seconds to six seconds slow. I think the world's fastest time is like 33 seconds for 200 meters. Mm-hmm. The fastest in my class is Marcus. Um, his, his record's like 40 point. Seven or something like that. So. Yeah, but I didn't know like, the extent mm. of the use of a leg. That makes much. Yeah, sense. yeah. It's, it's it's a lot of people. Think, oh, you're kayaking. You just you know put the paddle in the wall and you pull it. It's, yeah. Eh, not really. Okay. Yeah. You are an incredible sports person. You actually just won an mm. award. What award was that? Mm. We had the uh, Australian Sports Performance Awards, the AIS uh, Awards of the Male Paralympic Athlete of the Year. Oh yes. Athlete of the Year. You so. won. Who came second? Oh, I don't know. There's no places. Is there? Yeah, just well, wondering. He, he, beat, he, beat, he beat me basically. As well. <laughs> I was nominated. And, and Dylan has won everything this year, so I'm bloody glad yeah. that someone else got an award for once. Um, mate, yeah, you no. are obviously a great athlete and you're gearing up towards Thanks. Tokyo, as you said, yep. kayaking, canoeing. However, what do you do? What else do you do? What do you do outside of sport? Yeah, I do a little bit of public speaking. I uh, just got asked to do help out with uh, the team with Channel 7 over in Tokyo as well, so that'd be Brilliant. pretty cool. Doing a little bit of side, you know, commentating around sports, I think, uh, especially disability sports, it's um, an amazing thing to watch. And for you, Dylan, as well, you know, you see the sport, you're like, yeah, that's, that's amazing. But actually when you learn the people mm-hmm. and learn their stories and then you can talk about them with them and understand where their context and then where they're coming from, it's quite, you know, it's really cool to, to be a part of and bit of that. And then uh, I do, you know, a number of um, athletes commissions and uh, just starting this new um, with DFAT, um, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, this new Sports Diplomacy Advisory Council to promote sports uh, in the Pacific and Asia region. So, yeah, a few things there. And It's good, mm. mate. It would be remiss of us as well to talk about your role as an ambassador for the Invictus Games. Yeah, that's um, right. Can you just give, a, I guess, a quick brief what it is and, and what that means to be involved? Yeah, so the Invictus Games is a Paralympic-style event for wounded, injured, ill servicemen and women. Another factor that's sort of unknown about the Invictus Games is it incorporates the family members of those uh, wounded, injured, ill uh, servicemen and women, and, and that's a really important part because they're the front line of that rehabilitation. They're the, you know the ones that are calming their partner down when they're having nightmares or getting them to and from physio when they can't drive. So um, it's it's using the power of sport to aid rehabilitation and recovery and to show people 
um, I think this is a byproduct of it, but to show people what is possible despite the adversity and this um, athlete's got. It does an incredible job. Obviously, the the main mm. patron and the inventor is a guy called the Duke of oh, Sussex, your mate. Prince your Harry. Mate. Well, I was going <laughs> to ask that. Obviously, <laughs> your mates with Prince Harry. Yeah. I'm also mates with Prince Harry. Yeah. Who do you think's better friends with Prince Harry? <laughs> um, probably you, mate. You you got the one on one and on Kirribilli. So yes. Yeah. Shout out to Harry. I, I just take the I took the piss out of him um, when the Lions were playing in um, New Zealand for rugby. So uh, bit of back and forth, bit of back and forth, bit of back and forth. Nice. Yeah. And you even just mentioned that you were born in New Zealand, but obviously you compete for Australia. Is that because yep. New Zealand shit? <laughs> <laughs> They're actually second and, and and third. And just quickly, obviously Dylan's going to be there as well. But the Tokyo Paralympics uh, coming up later this year. Uh, what are you going to be competing in? Because you said the outrigging class is now open; it's back up. So you're going to be doing two sports this year. Our sport's called power canoe and that, that encapsulates sprint kayaking and sprint canoeing. And for the Paralympic class, it's an outrigger canoe, which is the sport I actually started in for the Paralympic journey. And that's what um, I was hoping to, to work in towards in, in Rio, but now it's been attached. So when I go over to world championships, I've raced both ever since 2015 and I've been world champ um, 10 times now in those two events. So trying to get that part of the games was really cool, but uh it's going to be a long journey and, and hopefully come away with some bling. 100%. Now, you, mm. uh, you have an incredible partner, Rachel. Um, she's amazing, amazing lady. Family on the cards? Not at the moment. Yeah, she's an ICU doctor. Um, uh, I said that before, we, we didn't meet in hospital. We met well before that. And, um, you know, one of those things that she's understanding of my journey and my, you know, difficulty because she's, you know, in that environment all the time. And she worked night shift tonight and she's... An amazing person but also extremely busy with her job and she's trying to study and get on the consultancy program and and when she's at home she's studying and when she's not she's at work so it's uh it's there's not much time in there now curtis before you go and before we give you the plug mm. um we do a thing called the bowl of uncomfortable uh this is <laughs> oh, where we, we have people who <laughs> send us tweets instagram dms um, from listening to previous podcasts and they have the morbid curiosity to ask you that they wouldn't ask in person this question is anonymous do you believe you've profited off or benefited from your disability? Yes. I've been fortunate enough to be supported really well and then that allows my story to be promoted and people get around that story and I've got sponsors because of that story and, and also my success. And I think um, that's not just me, that's the people that are in behind me supporting me and, and allowing me to, to, to perform well and it's, a, it's annoying, but success breeds success and it's um, part of the thing of, of sport, really. I know that you get looked upon sometimes by other return service men and women in a negative light because mm. you're the golden boy. How does that make you feel? Yeah, it, it's a hard one. Um, I think that it sort of relates back to my answer before about you know having the opportunity to do something and I went out and did it. And if you sit at home and not get off your ass and, and work for the opportunity, it'll go amiss and you might miss out. And I think I'm not world champion because I sit at home and, and want the world to give me something. I'm world champion because I get up and get to work and do it. And I just come from training right now. So there's this unfortunate thing called tall poppy syndrome that is in a number of different aspects and in industries around the world. And I believe the military is ruthless when it comes to this and it's really unfair. And I think other people can um, maybe put themselves in other people's perspectives and take a bit of insight into that.
and you are a tall poppy, slightly taller than you were originally. <laughs> Definitely taller than you. Angus O'Loughlin, can you see why I'm very good friends with this man? I, I <laughs> wish is. to join the friendship circle. <laughs> yes, I want to get a WhatsApp group immediately. Get amongst, uh, when get you, amongst. I'm not going to lie, Curtis got chose to bring the Australian flag into the closing mm. ceremony. Yeah. So the best athlete performance gets that, and it was an honour to stand behind you, brother. It really was. Yeah. We've become good mates over the last few years. So um, if anybody wants to get in touch with you to do speaking, you do appearances, sponsorship, what's the best way to go about yeah, it? Yeah, So I go in, like obviously social media, Facebook, Instagram, Kurt McGrath on Instagram and Twitter, and then uh, Curtis McGrath official on Facebook. And then obviously I've got my my website just curtismcgrath.com.au and then there's a, a, an email down the bottom so yeah and we should just say uh, well I, i'm going to say this from the, doing these podcasts i can understand why businesses why people should be bringing you guys in to speak because it's not about the disability or the injuries no. it's about what, what i've taken from this podcast isn't about judging people by their physical characteristics it's about the story of pride, passion, progression. What you can do. Pers- yeah, exactly, and determination. Mm. And, I, mate, I, every, every podcast I feel inspired, and this one is no different. And I, from myself, Angus, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your story with me and, and the listeners. I really appreciate it. Don't win two golds, though, in Tokyo, because then <laughs> no one will care about me. Well, <laughs> you go, you're going for the same thing, mate. So <laughs> exactly. just pressure's on. Good That's on you, right. brother. Thank you. Thanks, Curtis. Thanks All for right, being Thanks for having today. me. Thank, thank you very much. It. Bye. Curtis McGrath, wow. Can wow, you, can wow, you see wow, why wow. I'm jealous of his story well, getting made weird. to a movie? Yeah, I was gonna, it's I definitely mean, a movie. You're I'm not jealous say, of his story? I'm not allowed to say jealous of his story. <laughs> you know I, I mean? can't yeah, say yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, unless you want to lose your legs. <laughs> uh, just the part about saying, yeah. I'm going to go to the Paralympics while getting yeah. carried on the helicopter with no legs. Chills. I mean, I, I called bullshit originally, but I think it's real. <laughs> uh, and I, I can't thank him enough. For, I think also being pretty honest about some of those questions about what it's like to be in the armed service, but also the the way that other people look at him and things. Um, you know, he's a he's a legend of a bloke, and I really encourage everyone to get around the Paralympic Games and watch him because not only is he great to hear from, but he's a bloody good athlete as well. For our uh, deaf community, we are we are putting this up on our YouTube page. Just search Listenable, where you'll get to see the interviews that you're listening to in real life with captions. Here's the thing, though. You can also see how good of a looking rooster Curtis McGrath really is. Yeah, I was definitely the worst looking person in that. I agree. I mean, just <laughs> Angus is just above me. Uh, make sure you search Listenable on YouTube. Make sure you check out our Facebook page. We're hopefully building up a community of people to talk about disability in Australia and beyond, wherever you're listening to this. Uh, but let's give you a bit of an introduction into what you're going to hear on the next episode of Listenable, where you're going to be blown away by Prue. Everybody's got their own individual sensory profile. Mine is actually very hypersensitive to sound and smell. So my brain, the way that it processes that information is that it processes it too much and my brain doesn't have enough time to process the information so it becomes painful and it can make my brain shut down. Autism, something I know nothing about. And can I ask you something? Should I be, because obviously my role in this is to kind of be the every person where like, you know, people really don't know much about the disabled community. Uh, Should I be Googling and trying to sound more in... uh, you know, knowledgeable about some certain disabilities that we're going to come across? Or should I just play it like I I know what I know? No, nah, play this straight. And don't worry, once you meet Prue, you realise she'll tell you. Okay. You know what? If you know anybody that has a disability or is affected by disability, it could be parents, you could be doing assistive technology, mm-hmm. could be doing all kinds of things. Please get in touch with us via our socials because we'd love to have you as a guest on this Enable. 
Listen Able was presented by Dylan Alcott and Angus O'Loughlin and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Audio production by Darcy Thompson and the music was written and performed by Eliza Hull.